Welcome to Schools on the Front Lines, a podcast brought to you by EdSource and the Ball Frost Group. I'm your host, Carl Cohn. This special podcast series has focused on the multiple challenges faced by school leaders during the pandemic. In today's episode, I'm going to have a conversation with Dr. Michael Foyer, a longtime thought leader who has worked for years at the intersection of education research, policy, and practice. Michael is the Dean of the Graduate School of Education and Human Development at George Washington University in our nation's capital and immediate past president of the National Academy of Education. Michael and I first worked together on the evaluation of the D.C. public schools for the National Research Council. During our conversation today, we will refer to his institution as GW. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Carl. It's good to uh, be with you. Tell our listeners about your late summer education week piece entitled, Sure, Envision a New Public School System, but don't ignore the emergency at hand. What were your main points and how do you think that discussion's going here in the fall? I was intrigued by the number of people and the number of places that I was reading that this is an opportunity for us to be thinking actually long term. There's an old joke, of course, about uh, Lord Keynes, famous for that line about he was asked about the long run. And he said, well, in the long run, we're all dead. But the response from some other wag was it's even worse because in the long run, there will be another short run. And so part of what I was writing there was an attempt to acknowledge and respect and think about what people, teachers, parents, kids, communities may really be coping with. The aspiration that so many of them have to get back to something that looks normal. There's a lot of legitimate concern that kids being out of school are going to have a less good time in terms of learning, in terms of so many aspects of education. So there's a natural inclination to want to get back. And at the same time, there's this very compelling argument about what the pandemic has exposed about inequality, about the inadequacy, about for some people, although I'm not quite there, but For some people, it has exposed a complete failure of the American public education system. And that this is an opportunity, not necessarily to blame the pandemic for all of that, but to say, now that we see it up close and personal, this is a moment for us to be doing something about it for the longer term. Before we just go back to a status quo, which really is unacceptable in many dimensions, What can we be thinking about some major reform? Last week, the Harvard Gazette published an eye-catching interview with Professor Joseph Allen of their School of Public Health. In it, he argued that K-12 kids out of school is a national emergency and it's not being treated as such. Where should we be looking for the right kind of science behind reopening schools. 
Well, first of all, looking for any kind of science, I think, is a refreshing concept, especially in this day and age when there is so much hostility to good science. I have to say I have been very impressed with the rapid and nimble responses of scientific organizations that are not exactly famous for moving quickly. When science is invited to the table of policymaking and practice, it is invited because it has something special to offer. What science has that's very special is the rigor, the standards of evidence, the painstaking inquiry, the constant review, the scrutiny of data, the speculation that maybe we've missed something. All of that is what makes science great. But in terms of it being timely and relevant, there's an obvious uh, chasm there, which sometimes is very much problematic. In this case, even an organization where I used to work, the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine, got themselves together very quickly, produced uh, both with respect to the pandemic and then more specifically with respect to the questions about reopening of the schools and the health risks and the protocols that might be required. They've done some quite excellent synthesis of uh, research and of evidence that is relevant to those kinds of questions. Same goes for the National Academy of Education. So I would start actually with those because of the direct input of people who understand schools, schooling, and education. But none of this is, even with the best science, going to yield some kind of obvious or clear quote-unquote solution. What we should be asking science to help us with is, based on the evidence, what seems to be the best bets for a community? What are the conditions that we'd need to really be monitoring very closely as we do this? The genuine horns of a dilemma. So, Michael, this episode of the podcast will be published less than two weeks before our national election. You're there in the nation's capital, where the October speculation about the players in a potential new administration sometimes reaches a fever pitch. So tell our West Coast listeners, what are you hearing about candidates for Secretary of Education in a new Biden administration? The idea that just because I'm, I live physically in Washington gives me any advantage in terms of actually knowing what's going on, that's kind of touching. It, it, it evokes fond memories of the days when we didn't do everything by social media, internet, and virtual technology. As the new administration, if there is going to be a new administration, starts thinking about education as a priority policy item, the good news is that according to the most recent survey that just came out, a significant majority of Americans say that education is one of their highest priorities when they think about whom they're going to vote for. There is a very strong sense in D.C., and as you know, Carl, the percentage of voters in D.C. who are likely to vote for Joe Biden 
is probably somewhere between 95 and 100%. So I do live in a bit of a, an ideological bubble here. So but my sense is that the Betsy DeVos administration has been fundamentally hostile to basic norms of public education. So leaving aside specific policy proposals that the new administration, if it is elected, may or may not try to enact, I do think that candidate Biden and his team are visualizing that we may indeed have an opportunity for a reset. That would start with promoting a healthier public discussion about the origins, the purposes, the promise, the pitfalls of the American educational experiment. And at the top of the list, I believe that the administration under President Biden would continue and reinforce the notion that access to public education and the quality of what goes on in public schools, that that's not a zero-sum game. That, as the historian uh, Lawrence Kremen used to argue, this idea that you have either access of opportunity or quality of teaching are somehow incompatible, that was actually never really accepted in the philosophy that underlay the American public education dream. So the first part of what I hope and think the administration will do is reopen a public awareness that public education in America is about access of opportunity and the aspiration to higher standards of teaching, learning, achievement, outcomes. The second thing is that protecting public schools in America is also not necessarily in a zero sum with innovations that go beyond traditional public school bureaucratic structures. This is a complicated one because I actually think that there's pretty good evidence that the innovative streak in American public education, which is manifest through things like charter organizations and other kinds of attempts to break away from entrenched bureaucratic models and experimenting with different approaches to pedagogy and different approaches even to assessment of learning, that's part of what makes the system vibrant, healthy, and resilient. Here again, there's a trade-off. First of all, as I think it was Bill Gates who said, too much innovation without evaluation is just a fad. So you want to be careful with these kinds of experiments that take us away from traditional models in terms of what the, what the effects are and who, who is benefiting and who is losing. So, for example, with respect to charter schools, yeah, there's a lot of interesting things that can take place in some of those kinds of organizations. But there's a lot of evidence also that it has correlated with resegregating of our schools, growing inequality, and the continued fragmentation just when we really need public education to be a place for an aspiration to bringing this nation back together and not to continuing to fuel all of this, what is essentially uh, the increased separation 
The third thing I would say is that the most important short-term goal of the new administration has to be to find ways to get past this pandemic, to reaffirm that what happens with children in public schools has to be job number one, and that it's time for us to get serious about stopping and hopefully reversing the last 40 years of growing inequality and stagnation that has been part of the system. That's going to require new partnerships between the schools, their local communities, the health sector, the job sector, the judicial system. And uh, what we're looking at is a very ambitious agenda. Speaking of the first 100 days, is this on the order of FDR, spring of 1933, passing 15 major pieces of legislation to get the country moving again? Are we in that kind of a moment? The reason I like the idea of the analogy is because a sweeping, dramatic, federally inspired program that has within it education as a high priority for the future of the American system, that appeals to me greatly. And indeed, with FDR, there's another part of it which I think is very interesting as, a, as an analogy. Faced with the ravages of depression, economic disruption, unemployment, red lines, uncertainty, disease, anger, and many of the things that many Americans are dealing with today, in 1932, Faced with the choice between FDR and, shall we just say, some very mean-spirited demagogues and fascists, Americans chose a program that would prove to be enlightened and in some ways the only way that we could really save ourselves. I'm talking with Michael Foyer, Dean of the Graduate School of Education and Human Development at the George Washington University. Before the issues around racial reckoning, the Biden platform actually included a proposal for tripling our nation's current investment in Title I from about 15 billion to 45 billion. Would that begin to address the long-standing inequities with regard to poor children in our country? Well, you know, uh, the research on the returns to federal spending in education, and in Title I in particular, it has produced some mixed results, and it is, of course, a matter of continuing argumentation in the education research and policy community. My reading of the data suggests that, on balance, federal spending, Title I, have done much more good than harm, and that, second of all, the counterfactual, at least intuitively, how much worse off we would be today if we hadn't even spent that amount of money with that amount of diffused accountability for how and where it was being spent. The third thing is, for a system that costs the American people 
something like $650 billion a year, the idea of a federal investment of 15 or even 45 is first of all still, although a, a splashier drop in the bucket, it's a small piece of the total action. But I think both practically and symbolically a genuine increase in Title I spending with provisos for evaluation, I would advocate for spending, even if it costs us taxpayers a little bit more. The, the cost of not investing in education, that should be pretty clear to everybody uh, that it's a much higher cost than even $45 billion of Title I. We all know that our Constitution gives the responsibility for K-12 education to the states. Is this the crisis equals opportunity moment that demands a broad new policy discussion about fundamental change on that front? The idea of a broad public conversation where people respect one another's points of view and preferences and ideas, not to mention data. Uh, these are things that have been absent from public life for going on four years now. That said, I kind of like that in that public conversation, we would include a reopening of the federal role. What exactly is the federal role? And even to the possibility, as uh, your friend and mine, Jack Jennings, has said and written, let's get serious about whether education can be defined as one of our civil rights. Not a popular idea among people who already think we've spent too much time worrying about civil rights in any definition. But in the next round, this ought to be very much on the table. I would approach this with some moderation, with some appreciation that too much utopian thinking about these sorts of issues uh, can, first of all, be disappointing because of the pluralism and the politics of our system, and second of all, because it would provoke more anger and more fighting from exactly the kind of let's just say, uh, hawks on the state's right side of things who bristle at any, any thought of an increased federal role. To have opportunities for citizens to gather and discuss what are the plus minus, the pros and cons, the benefits and risks of increased federal responsibility for the idea of education being defined as a civil right for the implications with respect to the Constitution. None of these things have simple or direct or easy answers. But my hope would be that fostering those kinds of public conversations would even, just without getting to a result, would promote an opening of the American mind and an opening, a reopening of the American spirit to considering these very important issues. Finally, Michael, you're the host of a delightful podcast there at GW called The Ed Fix. Tell our listeners a bit about it and what you hope to accomplish going forward. I have, over the years, written and spoken at times about how looking for, quote-unquote, a fix in matters of education policy is a bit of a fool's errand, and that what we should really be aspiring to is 
is evidence of ways that we can make some amount of reasonable progress on very complicated matters and then see how we're doing. So the idea of Ed Fix is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but it's been a, a terrific way to bring together people who study these things, my faculty research colleagues, among the best in the world, with people who are actually doing this hard work, as despairing as a lot of what we know about education can make us feel. There are more than just glimmers of hope. There's, there's a lot of potential and, and reason to believe that we can keep doing some good things in this system. Michael, thank you so much for spending time with us. Good luck to you, the Ed Fix, and to all of my friends at GW. Thank you so much, Carl. Good luck to you and all of us. That was Michael Foyer, Dean of the Graduate School of Education and Human Development at the George Washington University. This has been Schools on the Front Lines, brought to you by Ed Source and the Ball Frost Group. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our opening theme is by Utah. Please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Carl Cohn. Talk to you next week. Thank you.